Hi, I'm Morvan Westfield, and you're listening to Vampires, Witches, and Geeks, a podcast about vampires, modern witches, and geeky stuff. This is episode 34, Beyond Twilight, The Infinite Variety of Vampire Fiction, with Anana Arthan. Because of the length, I've divided Anana's presentation into three parts. This is part one. How did we get from Lord Byron's story fragment to the billion-dollar media empire of Twilight, and where does the modern vampire go from here? In this lively talk, Anana Arthan traces the history of vampires in fiction and debunks some of the common mistakes and misinformation about the genre. Did Bram Stoker base Dracula on a 15th-century warlord? Do vampires burn in sunlight? Can vampires eat and have sex? If you think you know the answers, you're in for some surprises. Inanna Arthan, author, designer, and vampire expert, has been studying vampire folklore, media, and culture for 45 years. She runs by Light Unseen Media, a small press dedicated to fiction and nonfiction with a vampire theme. She is also the author of the Vampires of New England series of novels, which includes Mortal Touch, The Longer the Fall, and, coming soon, All the Shadows of the Rainbow. You might remember Anana from episode 3 of Vampires, Witches, and Geeks way back in July 2008 as the first interviewee. She's a fun and fascinating presenter, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This presentation was recorded at Books and Booze in Colchester, Connecticut on April 20, 2013. Books and Booze, that's B-O-O-S as in boo, I scared you is a new and used bookstore located at 514 Westchester Road. Co-owner Stacy Longo Harris introduces the presentation. I'm the co-owner of Books and Boots, and today we were welcoming Anana Harfin, who is going to be speaking about Beyond Twilight, the infinite variety of <laughs> vampire fiction. So please join me in welcoming author Anana Harfin. Thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, um, I have been a vampire fan since I was 11 years old. The first vampire movie I ever saw, I remember it vividly, was this one. <laughs> this was The Brides of Dracula, 1962, Hammer Films. It was part of their Dracula series. Uh, it's actually, I think, one of the best ones that they ever did. I was watching it on TV on an afternoon showing that had cut it down to, I think, one-hour time slot. If my mother had found me watching it, she probably would have turned it off and made me go outside. <laughs> Shortly after that, I discovered Dark Shadows, which, if you aren't familiar with that, there'll be a couple pics of it later. I read Dracula. I had to take Dracula out of the adult section of the library. I read it in one sitting. I still think Dracula is the greatest thriller that was ever written in English. And at the same age, which was 12 years old, I discovered Montague Summers' foundational folklore compendium written in the 1920s, The Vampire in Europe. And The Vampire in Europe and The Vampire, His Keith and Kin by Summers are the basis for almost every popular book on vampire folklore that you have ever read, or they're still being published. There are a lot of issues with those books, but they he really like laid the groundwork for everyone else, did all the work that everyone else then felt they didn't have to go back and redo, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I have been studying vampire fiction, folklore, and media ever since, which makes that 45 years by now. 
I started writing vampire fiction because I thought that no one else really got it right. And I write the kind of fiction that I like to read. There are a few other authors that I follow and collect. They're very realistic, kind of takes the vampire trope, puts it into a realistic uh, setting. There's a lot of magic, because I'm a, also a pagan and a magician myself, and so these are my two books so far. Mortal Touch is about a psychic. The Longer the Fall is about a woman who was raised in a magical order, and then how each of those characters encounter vampires and what happens to them subsequently. And now I run a small press by Light Unseen Media that only publishes fiction and nonfiction somehow on the theme of vampires. It's been all fiction up to now, but we just released last December our very first nonfiction book. This is the biggest, most comprehensive compendium of vampire-themed television that you will ever see. The person works for a television network, and he has been studying this and running a website since 1994. And this book actually is doing quite well. He lives in Canada, and it's, it's, he's going all over the place marketing it and so forth. But that's our, this is our first nonfiction book. Now, vampires have currently been going through a huge popularity peak, as I think everyone is aware. They go through those peaks periodically and then kind of die down and become less popular, usually still keep perking along, uh, but ever since the early 19th century. And every wave brings with it new changes, new kinds of vampires. So it's almost as if each age gets the kind of vampire that suits it, the kind of vampire that it, that it wants, and you might say the kind of vampire that it needs. But a lot of people are not aware of just how far back the history goes and how the changes have evolved over time. And many people think that vampires kind of started with Dracula. And they, don't, they aren't aware that Dracula simply stood on the shoulders, Bram Stoker simply stood on the shoulders of a tremendous history of vampire literature. And many people now are not aware of just exactly what that history consists of. There's a sense that before the modern era of vampire romance, that vampires were scary and horrible and monsters and so forth. And particularly, there's been this huge, in the last couple of years, there's been a huge Vam uh, backlash against Twilight. And I can absolutely guarantee that anybody, anybody who writes vampire books now is so done with hearing about sparkly vampires and, and <laughs> cracks about do your vampires sparkle, and we get this kind of complaint all the time. What is a traditional vampire? Everyone has their own favorite kind of vampire, and that's fine. If you like your vampires horrible and ravenous and bloodthirsty, we've got books for you. I mean, <laughs> I publish books for you. Um, that's okay. No one can argue with what you like. But every single vampire trait that you think of as being, quote, traditional, unquote, was actually invented and used by some fiction writer, in many cases a screenwriter for a movie. There are practically no fictional conventions that you think of as being typical of vampires that actually goes back to vampire folklore. And there's a lot of misunderstanding of vampire folklore, and some of that goes back to Montague Summers, some of it goes back to this mania for doing rational explanations for vampire beliefs. 
all of which are wrong because they miss the whole point of what was going on in the cultures that uh, that uh, you know came up with these beliefs and, and distributed them. These beliefs did lead to the earliest vampire fiction, but what vampire fiction did with them right from the start is very much misunderstood. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back to the beginning, and in the original version of this talk, uh, I talked a little bit more about the folklore. That would be a whole talk in and of itself, and you could go longer than two hours on it. And I thought I probably won't do as much with that, but if people have questions, you can ask me. Um, but I'm going to cover just a little bit. But I thought I'd look at, let's go back to the beginning of vampire fiction and what was really going on right out of the gate with that, which I think is, would surprise a lot of people. And then look at, go through it through the years and we'll look at some, what some of the big game changers were, where some of the traits or characteristics or concepts came in that now people think of as canon, some people, depends how old you are. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, can, you, know, can be, you can pinpoint their origin, and you can look at the time period in which they were uh, introduced and, and why did they become so popular. Uh, so, one of, the big, one of the big things that gets repeated a lot is the worldwide vampire belief, the idea that you know, every culture throughout history and all over the world has some kind of vampire belief, and I'm arguing that that is totally untrue that what happened is you had these folklorists at the turn of the turn of the 20th century there was a big mania among folklorists to find these universal field theories for everything and in, often there was an agenda underneath that which was to establish the primacy of western culture and to show that you know western culture is now the full fruit of what everybody else is working their way toward or has been working their way toward in history uh, most of that subsequently has been thoroughly debunked for example, uh, Sir James Fraser and his idea about development of religions through barbarous religion and sacrifices up to you know monotheism, and that's that's been blown out of the water. But that's untypical of the kind of thinking. Well, folklorists did the same thing with all kinds of folklore, but but vampire folklore as well. So, where you really see the vampire belief in its pure form, its actual form coming from, is it belongs, and I need a pointer, but it belongs to these countries, see the, the red, is Orthodox Christianity, and particularly you see Romania, Serbia, Bulgaria, and Greece. Those are where huge numbers of your... From Greek. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> I wrote a paper on the Greek Grikolakis that has actually been cited in academic books, so, and I wrote that for, for Harvard, so... Right. Um, but, but those are some of the richest sources of vampire folklore. Then you get some in Russia, uh, and then Poland, Hungary, um, Slovakia, the areas that are immediately adjacent to those areas where Orthodox Christianity was very uh, critical. That's where you got the vampire, the original vampire myths in their fully articulated form really came out of there. And so they believed in a belief, uh, overlap tremendously with witches and werewolves, and in the whole sense that modern fiction kind of categorized things and made strict rules and definitions and boundaries. These overlapped so much that the wor original words for vampire also meant witch and or werewolf. Uh, there were words that, vampire words that mean wolf pelt, upir, uh, which is an early uh, etymological origin for vampire means witch. So, people imagine the dead wouldn't rest easy in their grave. 
uh, they would dig up corpses that were believed to be haunting, but only, and this is something that Paul Barber in his book, uh, you know, imagining that, well, people dug these corpses up for some reason, and they hadn't, uh, you know, decayed enough, so they, oh, they're vampires, and that's putting the, it's putting the, the, the reasoning backwards. They, they, were, they were having flaps of phenomena, which you can argue about the cause, and they, they, they dug up the people they saw appearing, and then they, they decided whether or not those people had decayed enough, but they would dig people up, and people, the, the phenomena often was, there was blood drinking, there was poltergeist phenomena, there was, uh, you know, and, but often people would have this smothering sense that something was sitting on their chest and they choking them and they couldn't breathe and then they were gradually waste away. And you, you could say, well, t TB is probably the only, the only one of the quote-unquote rational explanations that may have some justification. And in that case, it was not so much creating the myth as validating it. But people from TV would waste away, and they would feel that they couldn't breathe, and then they would have these nightmares because they couldn't breathe in their sleep. Um, and so you have the, the whole sort of night hag uh, myth, and that overlaps with vampires. But female vampires were considered to uh, kill babies and children, but they also were seductive. They seduced young men. They were alluring. They were always, always thought to be beautiful in a very dangerous way. And you had to be on your guard because you'd think this was this beautiful woman and, and, and you'd end up being killed by it. Uh, male vampires were always, always, always very interested in sex. They were very sexual. And sometimes they were considered to be uh, foul-looking and horrible. Mostly the horror came from the fact this was a dead guy. And he wasn't supposed to be there. But they would frequently come back and pester their widows. They would, um, they pestered nuns in convents. They would rape virgins. I mean, they were rapists. They, would, they wouldn't take no for an answer. Uh, so the whole vampire myth was just infused with sexuality and the ambivalence people had about the dead. And that's really, you know, the idea that, that there was a right order of things being violated, and that's where all that came from. So the word vampire entered the English language in the late 17th century because people from England and France and Germany were reporting on some of these panics in some of these villages and very much scratching their heads. They couldn't figure out what was going on. First appears in writing in 1732 in English, and by that time it had become enough of a cultural, familiar word culturally that is being used as a metaphor. And whenever something is used as a metaphor, there has to be a very widespread basic understanding of its meaning because you can't make a metaphor out of something no one understands. So in the first printed versions of vampire are actually being used to refer to landlords and lawyers, you know, who are like sucking the blood of the people, <laughs> sucking the life out of people. Really? Yeah. And, and, and so it wasn't being used in fiction at first. Well, the fiction got going in the early 19th century. And you had starting in poetry in Germany, but then going into English, you know, prose in the early 19th century. And right from the start, right out of the gate. This was all about sex and all about sexually threatening and predatory men who nevertheless were irresistibly attractive to women. And so that's what made them threatening to men was that your women were interested in these guys and yet they were bad for them. The guy, you know, they were, they were, the men, the men were, they were toxic and they'd be corrupted or they'd just be, you know, ruined women or, or killed or they'd actually be killed. And again, the females, just as with the folklore, dangerously beautiful and seductive. They would use men. They would throw them away. 
Um, you see how she's got her hair around his neck and she's pulling him down with her own hair. Uh, that's actually the La Belle Dame Sans Mercy uh, illustration. That's from a little later time period, but that, again, all through the 19th century, there was tremendous cultural knowledge of, of, of vampires and an understanding of what they were. You would drop the word, everybody knew, everybody knew. So in 1816, several romantic poets and writers and their lovers and their ex-lovers and their would-be lovers spent the cold, rainy summer of 1816 on Lake Geneva, holed up indoors in Switzerland. And at one point, um, while they were doing lots and lots of drugs, they uh, challenged each other to a writing competition, a story writing competition. And four of these people were uh, Mary Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lord Byron, who needs no introduction, as he would tell you, <laughs> and John Polidori, who was Lord Byron's personal physician and in unrequited love with him. He also died at a very young age. Uh, Byron created a story, for, well, Shelley created Frankenstein. Most famously, Mary Shelley wrote what became Frankenstein as a result of this story writing challenge. Byron wrote a story fragment Byron had written a poem called The Jower, uh, which contained a long curse, someone being cursed to, into a vampire, uh, which I can actually quote, but won't unless you want me to. How do time. But I, I memorized it as when I was like in junior high school, because it's very dramatic. How do you spell um, that? Uh, it's G-I-A-O-U-R, I think. Okay. Or maybe not the A, but it's, it's Jower. And I forget what the word means, but it's a long, long poem, but then this, this curse is embedded in the middle of it. Um, and he decided he didn't like his story fragment. He tossed it out. Polidori picked it up and he polished it up and he finished it. Uh, it became a short story known as The Vampire. It was eventually published in 1819. In this story, uh, Lord Ruven, which is R-U-T-H-V-E-N, and has different kinds of spelling, Lord Ruven is presumably based on Byron. Uh, he, the name was taken from a novel by Byron's ex-lover, Lady Caroline Lamb, who had written a very harsh parody of Byron. Not a vampire, but just a very unflattering portrait. He named this character Lord Ruben, but everyone knew who it was. And so Polidori picked that name up, and he initially published the story under Byron's name, but that got squelched, and so he ended up taking credit for it. Uh, and he should have, because he wrote what became one of the most immensely, immensely influential uh, vampire stories, really, uh, up until Dracula. If Dracula had not been written, if Bram Stoker had not written Dracula, to this day, Lord Ruven would be the iconic male vampire in English literature. Uh, he is described as having a beautiful face, a winning tongue, a dead gray eye, skin a deadly hue. He never blushed or got red in the face. He fascinated and attracted people, but he always brought out their worst natures. And, and this was true for quite a long time in vampire fiction, he was revived by moonlight. The moon in vampire fiction up until, well, up until Stoker, uh, there, no one really explained how vampires got to be what they are, but if you left their bodies in the moonlight, they would be revived. And the, there's a modern writer named Manly Wade Wellman, who wrote a story called When It Was Moonlight, in which Edgar Allan Poe meets a vampire. And he uses that trope, and he was one of the first writers to actually try to use that again since the 19th century, because it really went out of style. Um, 
But that, so, so in the story, Lord Ruben is traveling with a young guy named Aubrey, and uh, they're traveling around, and Lord Ruben gets shot in a confrontation, says, leave my body in the moonlight, because then, of course, he comes back. But he says, you can't tell anyone. You can't tell anyone this has happened for one year. And then when Aubrey gets home, there's Lord Ruben courting his sister. And, of course, the one year ends just after it's all too late. But one of the things about this story, again, Lord Ruben gets away. He's not killed. He's not destroyed. Uh, poor Aubrey's sister, you know, is, is killed on her wedding night, and he disappears. Ruben disappears. And in fact, an unauthorized sequel to the story, which very few people have read, was actually published in France uh, by Cyprien Durard. Um, so, in the 1820s, this 1819, the story came out, during the 1820s, I mean, this story just took people by storm. It just really grabbed people's imaginations. At least six different plays based on the vampire were pro hugely popular and successful in France and in England. James Robinson Planchet wrote one called The Vampire or the Bride of the Isles, set in Scotland, with a vampire wearing, if you look close, a kilt. <laughs> Very strange. But aside from the play being incredibly popular, uh, and then Charles Nodier wrote a, book, wrote a play called Le Vampire, which was in French, and very, very popular in France. But Planchet wanted the vampire to be able to disappear and appear right on stage. <clears throat> so he invented a device which to this day is called the vampire trap. And I've actually seen this used in a play very effectively. Um, it was a play of Dracula. But the vampire trap is a trap door in the stage with spring hinges. And the actor could go down the trap door. Um, there's some argument of whether they could come up it, but <laughs> but as long as with the proper camouflaging, um, I saw a production of Dracula where they had Dracula wearing the high collared cape, and evidently had stiff shoulders in the cape. But you couldn't tell what was going on. They did it so well, and Dracula had his back to the audience, and two of the other actors had gripped him by the shoulders, and all of a sudden they just dropped the cape and jumped back and the cape falls to the floor, and the actor has gone down the trap, and you didn't even see it. They did it so well. And so Planchet invented that for uh, The Bride of the Isles, which was from Polidori's story. Now, two German operas, two <laughs> operas adapted this story, and they are still performed today. This is a 2008 in uh, Bologna, performance of uh, Der Vampir, which was one of the two adaptations. And I believe there actually has been on public television. One of them had been uh, uh, taped and filmed, and um, one of those operas. In the 1840s, the whole vampire trope based on Lord Ruben as this aristocratic, attractive, sexually alluring, but totally evil character was so well known that other fiction writers were beginning to allude to that character in their fiction. Uh, I was very surprised to read the original Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas and find that the Count, because he's pale, thin, has piercing eyes, dresses all in black and is very mysterious, uh, is compared to Lord Ruben over and over again in that book. Uh, one of the characters is convinced that maybe he's a vampire and that, uh, you know, that he, and he calls him by that name, Lord Ruben. Uh, and it's very likely that because the Count of Monte Cristo was referred to as the Count, 
And because of his characteristics, I would be very surprised if that character did not strongly influence Stoker in his characterization. Um, in Jane Eyre in 1847, Rochester's mad wife is compared to that foul German specter, the vampire. And here she is creeping into Jane's room in a stage production. And in also that year, Heathcliff. Uh, who has many vampiric characteristics through the book in terms of that sort of that passion and that rage and also being an exotic character. And he never has a last name. There's no last name on his tombstone. But near the end of the book, when he's kind of losing it and he's like climbing out of his window and wandering the moors all night, not sleeping and, and you know, getting very thin and so forth, and his housekeeper kind of thinks, gee, could he be a vampire or, or a ghoul or something because he's just not, he's acting so strange. So Heathcliff is actually compared to a vampire in, um, uh, by the author in that book, not just by, by readers of the book. Also in 1847, we already had this big wave come up with, you know, about 20 years earlier with the vampire and all the play versions and so forth, but we had Varney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood. And this is where you're seeing where the whole trope is really getting down into the lower classes because these books appealed to the lower classes, the people who were just barely literate, uh, and they would buy these. And this was, I would say it was the twilight of its day in terms of popularity, but it was really the dark shadows of its day because it was a serial and it came out every week and it went for two and a half years. And people were buying this thing and it was full of these lovely, lurid woodcuts. That's mm -hmm. Sir Francis Barney who, contrary to what most people think, is the first angsty vampire who hates his curse and complains <laughs> endlessly about how unfortunate he is and how much he hates being a vampire. And um, if you don't mind a spoiler, I can tell you what he does at the end. Sure. Kills himself by, by jumping into the erupting Mount Vesuvius. Oh. Uh, because he also... That's effective. <laughs> yes, well, he kept him over the moonlight because he also revived in moonlight. So he gets killed all through the book. He killed over and over again, like Dracula in the Hammer series, and then he le gets left in the moonlight very carelessly, and you know comes right back like a bad penny. Uh, but this book just went on and on and on and on and on and on. But people loved it, absolutely loved it. So we had again, we had lofty stature, a long, sallow face, slightly projecting teeth dark, lustrous, somewhat somber eyes was the way he's described when he's himself. Uh, when he's attacking someone, his victims say white face, long sharp teeth, long claw-like fingernails, eyes hard and metallic, and then his skin would get all red and ruddy after he attacked someone, which that's from folklore actually. Uh, he is noted to resemble an old portrait of a supposedly long dead person, which is, I think, the first time that trope is used in vampire fiction, and then we see that coming up a number a lot if it comes in later fiction. Uh, there may have been more than one author because the book just goes all over the place, and like the end, the last few chapters really they they have a different style. They just feel really different than the beginning of the book, and so there was um, a lot of there was controversy over who really wrote this thing, but I think. The answer is it was written by more than one person. And we have the lady staked through the liver, which, uh, you know. Um, but there were a lot of woodcuts, and I think that's one of the things that made the book so, so popular. In the 1850s, several more stage plays featuring vampires were produced. Alexandra Dumas wrote one called The Vampire. Um, 
Dion Boucicault wrote and starred in a play called The Vampire in 1852, which Queen Victoria in her diary called very trashy. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read it, so I don't know what. <laughs> and in 1855, and this is really interesting, one of the things I found from one of my, my informational websites, and I um, probably should keep track of the time, but I can't. Uh, Charles Dickens edited a magazine called Household Words, and in 1855 printed an article about vampires, which is not credited, so we don't know if Dickens wrote this or who wrote it. But I wanted to write, read a, a section from it, because this tells you, as of 1855, what the popular image of the vampire was, and, and obviously was considered a topic of enough interest. Thank you topic of enough interest that the readers of the magazine would, you know, which were considered to be gentlemen, mostly, but Household Words was, it was a family magazine, but you knew people were going to want to read this. Of all the creatures of superstition, a vampire is, perhaps, the most horrible. You are lying in your bed at night, thinking of nothing but sleep, when you see, by the faint light that is in your bedchamber, a shape entering at the door and gliding towards you with a long sigh, as of the wind across the open fields when darkness has fallen across them. The thing moves along the air as if by the mere act of volition, and it has a human visage and figure. The eyes stare wildly from the head, the hair is bristling, the flesh is livid, the mouth is bloody. You lie still, like one under the influence of the nightmare, and the thing floats slowly over you. Presently you fall into a dead sleep or swoon, returning up until the latest moment of consciousness, the fixed and glassy stare of the phantom. When you awake in the morning, you think it is all a dream, until you perceive a small, blue, deadly-looking spot on your chest near the heart, and the truth flashes on you. You say nothing of the matter to your friends, but you know you are a doomed man, and you know rightly. For every night the terrible shape comes to your bedside with a face that seems horrified at itself and sucks your lifeblood in your sleep. And that was in 1855. This concludes part one of this three-part series. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to hearing from you. You can leave comments at www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com. Thanks for listening. The contents of this presentation are copyright 2013, Anana Arthen. The recording of this episode is copyright 2013, Morvan Westfield, but is licensed under a Creative Commons license. See www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com for details.